incarnate here. We are in Ruth. We introduced it a little bit last week and uh, tried to give an overall of what we're going to be, overall view of what we're going to be looking at. But let's stand and read the first five verses today as we get a look, closer look at the book. Ruth 1, beginning the verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from the Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and and Ephrathites. I think it's Ephrathites, either way. Is the basically the area around uh, Bethlehem that settled by uh, it's basically a clan name, and so it, Bethlehem is kind of known as Bethlehem of the Pathra and so forth. But they went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. And these two Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women were left without her two sons. Uh, just to remind ourselves what we talked about last week, we saw that Ruth teaches us about Jesus both historically and typically. That is, in Ruth we have the history of the line of Christ, uh, the line of David, of course, where David was uh, some four generations later. And yet also in Ruth and Boaz, Boaz, we're going to have a great type of Christ in the church as he redeemed the church. So there's two different things going on here, which is often the case in the Old Testament. We also identify with her and Naomi since both were in dire straits and unable to do anything about it until a kinsman redeemer set his sights on them, and Ruth in particular, and uh, brings them out of the situation that they're in which again is correlates with our own redemption. Finally, we see that God is always behind the scenes, orchestrating all things for his purposes. And I originally had stopped there, and I was going back over that, I thought, well, I'm going to not stop here, because a lot of people think that God is orchestrating things, basically as he watches what we do with our free will, he kind of just, keeps everything in line, trying to get everything moving towards whatever end he has. So it's almost like he is not being proactive, but reactive. And so I added, which he ordained from eternity. God is working behind the scenes, obviously, in everybody's life, lost or saved, to do that the whole world would, the world history would come to that place where he has ordained it to be from eternity. So he's proactive in his uh, providential work. He's not reactive, and I think that's very important for us to understand, or, or we're going to have a lot of problems with a lot of techniques. So last week we saw that one of the main things to see in this book is the teaching of redemption. It's biblical redemption. And by biblical redemption, I do not mean Hollywood redemption. It's 
Hollywood, if, you know, I'm sure you've seen it in a movie or something, uh, sees redemption as, well, I did something in my past that was not good, and I have a lot of guilt over it. And so, at some point, you look for a way to do something that kind of makes everything right. That's kind of how you feel. A lot of times you hear about redemption in Hollywood, in the, in the world. That's how what you hear. And it makes sense to them because that redemption is, is I've got to do something to get on the right side of things. I've messed things up, and now it's up to me to make things right. But of course, that's contrary to biblical redemption, whereas we've got ourselves in a mess, and God has to redeem us. He's the one who has to do the work. And so it's very important for us to remember, keep that in mind, uh, or we completely destroy the concept of redemption. So it's the idea of being brought, biblical redemption is the idea of being brought from one destructive master for the service of a saving one, from sin to uh, the Lord Jesus Christ what redemption is. So when someone in the book of Ruth has to be in a situation in which so someone in the book of Ruth has to be in a situation in which they need to be redeemed, right? If that's the theme, and so we're going to see this week and especially next week uh, that's Ruth and Naomi. But Ruth in particular, but both of them are in a situation where they need to be redeemed. And we'll see kind of how they got themselves in that situation today. And so the very first, uh, well, the, the first five verses set the whole book up for us. And what we want to notice, first of all, is that it's not the famine that's the real problem here with Elimelech and, and his family, and Ruth and Naomi and so forth. The, the, the famine is uh, the situation they find themselves in. And, and the first phrase is very significant, having come out of the book of Judges, and really not just Judges, but the Pentateuch as well, when we read this, our mind should go to a certain place. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now what this is not saying in the historical context is that uh, it just happened to be there was a famine. Because you've got to remember that they're under the Old Covenant. And uh, when we consider why there's a famine in the land, and this is a land that, remember, is flowing with milk and honey, we ask ourselves why, and of course we should know why from uh, what we see. Back in Leviticus 26.3, and I've uh, compacted some of this, left out a few verses. If you walk in my statutes and my commandments to do them, then I will give you your rains in the season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. But, if you, and then it goes on, uh, you know, other blessings, one of them being, I'll refer to in a second, five of you shall be able to stand against the hundred of the enemy and overtake them, right? All these kind of blessings. But, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your souls abhor my rule, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic and wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. 
And then in verse 20, And your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. So, as we read the first five verses, based on this, there's for Deuteronomy, many texts like this, now we understand what's going on here. Uh, and having just gone through the book of Judges, right? Uh, the, the land that the people are, as a, as a whole, have just completely abandoned God in the covenant. So, there's a famine in the land. Because God promised that was going to happen, right? And, to make matters worse, but listen even in these things. You've got uh, Elimelech, two sons, who are named, wasted away and sickly, I believe, uh, the, uh, I have their names down here, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself, but they were born, obviously, sickly, and somehow managed to make it to probably uh, old enough to get married and die soon afterwards, which is exactly what he says is going to happen. It's, uh, it's not going to be good. So as we consider then, the famine of the land, <clears throat> Bethlehem means, the, the name Bethlehem means the house of bread, and yet Elimelech has them because of the sin of the land they are suffering the consequences. And so the phrase here, there was a famine in the land, is not so much a historical marker telling us what happened, you know, that the situation that kind of led to all this. It's really a theological marker. It's telling us of the spiritual condition more than just what when this happened. And it's good for us to remember, you know, they lived under a covenant that really in one sense was a great covenant. God graciously said, all you've got to do is just worship me, love me as you ought, and your, your, your life is going to go well. Because we know that it's law, though, so really it, it wasn't good news to the natural man. Because the natural man can't obey God. And so we've seen that already uh, proven over and over again, uh, even to the book of Ruth, right? But the new covenant, reminders, well, how does it apply to the new covenant? Well, there's that principle that we were created to serve the Lord, and if we are right with God, if we love Him with all of our heart, it's not talking about it will be saved, that we'll justify ourselves, but that we will be living as we were intended to live, and it will turn out well for us. But of course, we know that the obedient part of that, Christ had to supply it, otherwise we'd be no better off than the Jewish people. So we see in type, really the new covenant. The new covenant, the old covenant was do this and be blessed, and they didn't, if, if, you know, disobey, you're going to die. And the new covenant is Christ did it, Therefore, we're going to live. Therefore, we're going to be blessed. We don't, we don't have to worry about the not doing. Because Christ has died before us. Learn then that the Lord doesn't make idle threats. We saw there in verse 20, uh, this is what famine's coming and famine has come. There's nothing wrong with the land. It's just that God will not tolerate the people worshiping other gods. This is the reality that many do not choose to live in. Certainly Christians still struggle with this, thinking that we can live, lean into our own understanding, as the Proverbs says you should not do, and that it's going to work out okay. We've given all these examples that know that's not going to happen. Israel in the flesh 
illustrates over and over again, no, you cannot lead into your own understanding. You've got to obey God. He's the only source of wisdom. And it will turn out right. It doesn't mean your life is going to be all roses. We don't live under the old covenant. It's the health and wealth heretics today don't understand. We don't live under the same, par- the, the same covenant that Israel did. Obeying God doesn't mean I'm going to be healthy and my children are all going to be saved. My marriage is going to be wonderful. It, it means that, um, that that I'll be serving the Lord and earning eternal reward. And, you know, again, people get this messed up and run all sorts of heresy. Uh, but here's a kind of a place where we see this principle in the New Covenant. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will we also reap. Well, as we see in here in Ruth, right, verse, verse 1, they're reaping what they sown. But this is in the context of the church in Galatia, uh, where he's telling them to serve and love one another and to, to you know, have the unity that you're supposed to have. And that this is, this is what will bring God's blessings upon you. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap, his flesh will reap corruption. If you live for yourself, there, there's a principle that you can see even in the flesh, even in the world, even in Christian life sometimes, when you live selfishly, it's not going to turn out well. The Lord will be blessing you in certain ways. Now, he might give you all kinds of money, but spiritually you're going to suffer, right? You're going to, and you might send to the poor for the Lord just removed you. you know, so there's this principle. So in the flesh you're going to reap the corruption, but the one who sows in the spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So, not only uh, eternal life, but uh, when we serve the Lord and, and obey the Word of God, we're going to enjoy the Lord. We're going to enjoy uh, what it is to be a Christian. We might spend the rest of our life in a sick bed or in prison, but spiritually we're going to reap. We know that our reward comes later. So let us not go weary of well-doing. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us be good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So there's that principle of obey the Lord, and it will be well for you. But that does not mean if I, uh, in my good little Christian, I will reap rewards in the flesh. Again, that's the heresy of the health of wealth gospel. So understanding this should give us a burden for the lost, for sure, because what they're going to reap is much worse than just the discipline, perhaps, of the Lord who's chasing hand towards his children. But someday they're going to face the eternal, unmitigated wrath of God. So, we see, this is one thing for a Christian, but uh, the principle for, for the lost is even worse. What we are being told here with the Limelech, that he has to act in an ungodly response to this trial that he finds himself in. Now, I mean, there are some commentators who would not say that. That just, you know, it was a famine. Elizabeth, you know, didn't know what to do. He had to feed his family. So he goes over to Moab because they're not, uh, evidently, it wasn't as bad over there. But that right there should kind of be triggering alarm bells in his mind, right? But I think that overall, if you think about how he ends up and where all this leads to, it is not God's will for him to go to a to Moab that was um, a, a in the worst kind of idolatry, moving his family to a place that they weren't have anything to do with as the Israelites. 
Uh, yes, things were difficult in Bethlehem, the place of bread, but Moab was the place where God wasn't even there, that, you know, in, in the sense of the, you know, the heathen place. So Deuteronomy 23 makes it very clear that God wanted Israel, and we won't turn there now, but God wanted Israel to have nothing to do with them as a nation. And even if a Moab man came and joined himself to Israel, there's a little bit of a debate among the commentators, but for clearly at least ten generations, his family wasn't even allowed to participate in temple worship and basically become actual Jews for at least ten generations, and some think perhaps not even So there's no way, I don't think there's any way you really can state the idea that a Limelech is not living by faith Here's a trial, and so I'm going to trust the Lord and stay with God's people. Instead, he runs to uh, this very wicked place. And it doesn't end well, so I think that'll be maybe a, perhaps another clue. <clears throat> and I think there's an interesting turn of events here. In the two previous stories involving Bethlehem that we saw at the end of the book of Judges, the uh, troubled nation of Israel, the catchphrase was, there was no king in Israel. But now there's something to change here because Elimelech says, he's my God is me. So now all of a sudden, perhaps, even though Elimelech obviously not a good example, uh, he leaves the place where God has promised would supply all their needs and he goes toward other people to help to um, help uh, people that hate the Lord. And yet, we're, we're, we're for the first time we're, we're introduced to my God is so maybe perhaps something is going to change, and of course I think that's what that is going to take place. So the text seems to indicate that it will only be for a short time, but it turns out to be ten years. His two sons, as I said before, uh, mean to be sick and failing, wasting away. You know, we say, well, why would you name your, your sons that? Well, they were probably born with something that was that probably didn't expect them to live. Maybe a in the heart failed, uh, 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 hole in the heart. I think my first church was maybe born. She had a small hole in the heart. It, it, it's one of those things where, you know, you're going to be weak, your, your heart's struggling, you know, for to pump blood through. So they don't last, people don't last long. They were able to sew that up, though, and that she's fine today, and she's the dog, and the family, and everything. Years ago, some were born like that. They just knew. They didn't know why. They knew they weren't going to. They probably weren't going to live there. And perhaps what that's what it was. And so they told him that. And his decision to think only of his family's physical well-being ends up having the opposite effect. In other words, it, there, there, there doesn't seem to be anything in his uh, actions that make him think about Leviticus and Deuteronomy and why this is happening. It's just I'm in. I have a physical need, and so whatever it takes to get those my family fed is all I'm really thinking about. And that can be and has been a dangerous situation for many, especially men who will do anything to take care of their family instead of saying, well, you know, there's a point in which I've got to give this to the Lord. He's going to take care of it better than I can. And I'm not going to compromise my faith just for that. So I, don't, I never saw, but uh, you probably heard of it. Four weddings and a funeral. 
So here we have a funeral, two weddings and two funerals. This is what ends up with him. So it's son married women that they were not supposed to marry. And at the end, his family devastated. So he's reaping what he has sown. Now we can stop here and remind ourselves, as fathers and mothers and parents, decisions we make for our families have consequences that they will bear fruit. Again, going back to Galatians 6, 7. So in the flesh, if you live in the flesh, if, if you're looking for only reward in the flesh, well, you're going to get it, but it's not. It's going to be corruption and death. So we got to take these things seriously. I think it illustrates what we've said many times about how we react to trials. You either can just endure them as a necessary evil that God is making you go through because you don't have a good, you don't have good theology. So in life turn sour in some way instead of rejoicing the Lord and trusting Him to take care of this and to be faithful anyway, you become bitter. Because it's all about me and, 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 and it's not about God. Even if you're saved, your theology is so messed up that you are unable, or you're at least so weak in the faith. And, and, you know, it's not like I don't struggle with these things too. I think Everybody does, but obviously there's a point of maturity where people have been able to say, okay, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what the book of Job is all about, right? He didn't become bitter. He, he struggled with why, but he struggled with why so that as we read that, we don't have to struggle as much because obviously we're going to go through trials like Elizabeth is going through. We don't know why. But because of the book of Job, we know that God has a good reason for it. And of course, Romans 8, 28. So you can just endure it as a necessary evil and become bitter and miserable. Or you can take the easy way out that like Elimelech does. And that's to compromise with sin because obedience is too hard. So I'm going to end this problem. Not all problems you can, you can't end everything, but some problems that you face, you can Eliminate them, eliminate them, but you have to compromise truth and your uh, service to the Lord to do it. And I think that's kind of what Elimelech has done. But that's not the goal either. That's not, uh, again, it's sometimes keeping yourself and your family alive at all costs is not the good stuff. That's hard, hard language, right? It's a hard concept to think about. But and if you got to think about all the martyrs down throughout history, you can read about what if, if there are books out there that read about what have happened when the communist takeover and how people, entire families were wiped out because they would not compromise their faith. Sometimes physical safety is not the way to go. It's not it's to serve the Lord. And if, again, it's reaping spiritually or physically, and your reward will be physical and spiritual. And uh, if it's physical, I say, if you do whatever you have to do to save your skin, you are not going to reward eternal, reap eternal rewards. So, again, those are difficult things. They're difficult truths, and just because we struggle with those, and because it's difficult doesn't mean that we've got to say, well, you know, that's, that's all in theory. That's high in the sky theology. Well, no, because someday we're going to be in the sky. Someday... That's where we're going to be. That that the spiritual world and reward is the reality that we 
must live in. Otherwise, you miss the whole point of our existence. So the third option, I think what Elimelech should have done, is to trust or um, in this trial, not let the trial be your master. How can I serve the Lord in this? And therefore, every moment, every experience of life can be lived to its fullest meaning of the Lord, no matter how difficult it is. And of course, we, I mean, there's so many verses we can look at, Romans 8, 35, the following, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? So there, there's all the, you know, that kind of sums up all trials, right? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So there's a theological truth that, you know, life is the Lord putting you in situations so that you can demonstrate what life is all about, who God is, right? We're, we are to regard ourselves as sheep to be slaughtered. We are to be living sacrifices. Another way Paul says this a few chapters later. We are to be living sacrifices for the Lord. And a sacrifice is a, is a rule die. Physically, at least, right? No. He says that all these things, these things aren't sent to separate us from God. Of course, theologically they can't because we're in Christ, but they're not sent because God hates us or because we're, we're no longer saved or anything like that. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life or angels or rulers or things present or things to come or power and the things to come it's kind of, you know, John Piper one of his big key words key phrases, future grace that's kind of the idea that everything that comes is going to be grace to me as well because I'm in Christ or, or height or depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if Elimelech had Realize that you know. Realize that I am in the land of Yahweh. I'm here to serve Him, and He'll take care of me. Things I, you know, I think it theoretically would have been, I think, much different. But this book and even this chapter is not really about a little like failure. It's really the background for the situation that Naomi and Ruth find themselves in. Naomi means lovely, but sin, not necessarily her sin, but sin has brought her to a place where she is in a place of bitterness. In verse 20, do not call me Naomi, but call me Mara. We talked about that last week. means bitter. And I don't mean that she's, I don't think she's bitter in the sense that she's blaming God for being unfair, so she's just going to sit around the house and complain and, and just be unhappy. Nothing in the account suggests this. But she knows that she needs help. She knows that the Lord has dealt with her and her family in a bitter way. She, she's accepting the fact that this is where I am right now. And we're all going to be brought to a similar place at some point. But will we be faithful? See, that's the key question. Or will we be bitter recently? And I've seen it. And, and I've experienced the Temptation to be bitter, to just leave the ministry, to just quit, to just give up. Right, we all have it at some point. 
But I've seen people who have succumbed to that temptation, who just drop out of church, they drop out of life, they're just bitter. Because, you know, and it's just selfish. We understand the feeling, but it's that remaining sin in us that says, that my life is about me being happy, and anything short of that, I can't handle it. And that's the problem, but it's, that, it's something that a Christian must face. So the, the point of all this is that these two women need a redeemer. So we've seen why now Ruth needs a redeemer. They've been brought to a point of destitution. The only hope they had was that someone stronger and richer than themselves would show them mercy and grace. <clears throat> She's tasted the Lord's bitter pill that rebellion has brought upon her to her husband. But the context of Ruth also reveals that the Lord is going to provide remedy. So we see the typology here of salvation. Now in Hebrew narrative, we learn that there is a central verse or a turning point that helps explain the story. And so here it would seem like verses 16 and 17 kind of help us realize <clears throat> we see a turning point here. Two women start out with Naomi to return to the promised land, but only Ruth gets there of the two. Orphic kisses of them goodbye, but Ruth casts her lot with the God of Naomi. <clears throat> Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you. And of course, what, what's happened is um, their faith, you might say, has been tested. And Naomi says, look, there's nothing for you here back at Bethlehem. Stay with your own people. And in, in, in a sense, it's the gospel call. If I can just kind of express it a little bit. The gospel call is to call us out of the world to Christ. The lost person thinks, no, I have, I, it's better for me to stay with my own time. But the one who's been regenerate hears it and says, no, it's better for me to follow Christ. And so what does Ruth say? Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord do so to me, and more of anything but death parts me from you. So you see here, a kind of a point of conversion, it would appear with Ruth. <clears throat> uh, she cast her hope in the God of uh, Naomi, because she knows she's in the same position as Naomi. So again, uh, we read that in Hebrew storytelling, they often repeat certain words in a narrative to they're making a point. In English, repetition is seen as kind of like bad English. Uh, especially if you're writing a book or you know, if I'm preaching, I, I kind of try to be careful with this and things that always work. Try not to repeat the same word over and over again. It, it shows a lack of vocabulary and it's it just doesn't sound good, you know, in our way of thinking. Uh, it's a sense of sameness, repetition. But, you know, sometimes we do it, we would see words for emphasis, maybe a poetry or a song, but we, we you know, if you're reading a novel, you would uh, you would wonder what's going on if the guy just put the same word over and over again because vocabulary or whatever. But in Hebrew, it's, it's not the case, always. They do that to make a point. And so in this chapter, one word that is repeated over and over again 
it's not bad grammar, it's because that's the way language works, and that word is returned. It's about, I think, uh, 11 or 12 times you read about it. Now, in the English translations, it's been smoothed out a little bit. They changed the word a little bit. Just, you know, it depends on what translation you're using, but just because it doesn't sound right to our ears. And so in 6, 7, 8, 10, 16, 22, you've got the word return. Again, in the ESV, it would vary a little bit with the translation. In 11, 12, 15, 21, you have the exact same Hebrew word, but it's changed. For instance, in verse 11, uh, it says, uh, verse 12, turn back. In verse 11, turn back. It's the same word as return. And interesting that that word is when the Old Testament, always when the Old Testament speaks of the Jews returning back to God and repenting, it uses that word return. So, it's like we're being told that, look, that, that Ruth and Naomi are returning to where they should be. They're returning to the Lord. This is all about God's redemption, the redemptive work, and the plan against the Redeemer for them. Uh, they, they have not, they have lost their way, but they're being brought back to the Lord. And of course, we know that in this day, without a husband to take care of them, we're either not going to be around very long. Think about Elijah. Remember when he came to the, he met that widow and her son, and they had just fixed their last meal, and she said, we're going to sit down and die. Now, under the law, that shouldn't be. They, they were, were to be provided for in one way or another. And, uh, so, it just shows you the spiritual condition of Israel, the northern kingdom, right, in Elijah's, Elijah's day. Uh, but if they weren't going to die, they were certainly going to be destitute. They weren't, you know, so Ruth was able to glean, but had she, in normal circumstances, that would have just helped her a little bit during the harvest, but it still wasn't going to help her for the whole year necessarily. So you, you kind of see the problem here. As you said earlier, it's not because the Lord has made their bitter, in a place of bitterness, not because they're bitter with them, but because of the bitter experience of being away from the Lord. <clears throat> but we're being set up for what we as saints know is coming, which is how their lives are going to be radically changed as they meet that kinsman redeemer, right? So we're kind of, it's being set up for itself. And so her fruit, that is Naomi's fruit, has been sick and died. She has brought forth two sons who have not lived very long. Instead of having children and continuing the family, they have died. She has borne no fruit. But we're going to see here soon how that in meeting Boaz, she's going to bear fruit. She's going to have a grandchild. Uh, And of course, that's going to lead to David and so forth. So you see how her fortunes are going to be turned. The Bible teaches us that health is a place of utter loss. You know, when we say you can't take it with you, that's especially true with the loss. They're not taking anything with you. Utter loss. They have nothing. It's a, you know, the, the, the worst part of hell is probably the hopelessness that, that it will never change. They'll never have anything good, you know. And we see a little bit of that in Revelation 20, 12. And I think that this is the, the general revelation general judgment, but you see it, I think especially in the eyes of the lost, where the dead and the small and the 
great and stand before God. The books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the book according to their works. So their eternal state is going to be one measured in part by how how much they sinned, as it were, in uh, according to their life in this life. But uh, they're going off into a, a hopeless situation. But by being joined to the kitchen redeemer, it, 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 the lost person doesn't bear fruit. He has utter loss. That's the first one I want to make. There's, there's no fruit except bad, you know, if anything, right? But those joined to the kinsman redeemer, our lives, as we've already seen, if we are right with God and if we're serving Him, will bear fruit. So we have something to look forward to. The lost has uh, nothing to look forward to. It's all bad. And I thought Revelation fourteen thirteen kind of brings that out. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed, happy are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds. It's just fruit. We're, we're, we're storing up as it were reward. And it's a great... Uh, privilege, promise of the Christian faith that yes, we're saved due to Christ's birth alone, but if we're faithful, the Lord will make that right and, and, and it will mean something in eternity. And I don't know about you, but I don't want my life to be of no value, to mean nothing in the end, and then to have to answer to God for all the decisions in my life where I said, no, I'm going to live in the flesh and we do what's easy and uh, not what the Lord but what pleased the Lord. I want to count and I think that's kind of the idea here. If we're if we've been redeemed out of sin, the Lord has put value upon our life that we didn't have before, where now we can actually accomplish something. So the lost I don't care what you do in this world as a lost person it doesn't count for anything if it doesn't isn't for the Lord. And you die, and you leave it, right? Because a lost person is not going to be rewarded for anything. He might, he might suffer less if he's a good person, but his life hasn't counted for anything. More no fruit. So I want to be one of that number. You think about that can spend eternity enraptured by the only real glory there is in worship at my Redeemer's feet, and only in coming to Christ for that happen. I want my life to count for something now in what I do and to help people see the glory of the Lord to bear lasting fruit. Because if at the end of the day my life is only about helping people eke out a few years on earth and those are horizontally good work, good things to do to help somebody in the flesh, but if that's all I've accomplished and it's the lost person that's all they can accomplish. If I help somebody live for a few years in the flesh, but I haven't pointed in the Christ, and I haven't tried to with their souls, as it were, well, what have I done? I haven't done anything. Remember the parable of the talent. Those who bore no no interest, right? The one got just one piece and didn't do anything with it. He bore no fruit with that. 
the one who ends up in hell. Because you have, you, I've given you life, and you haven't done anything with it for that value. Only a Christian's life can bear eternal fruit. So, as we're going to see, once we become married to Christ in the church, now we're able to have acceptable children. What do you mean by that? Well, John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. But with me, you can bear much fruit. I'm the vine, you're the branches, right? So once we are joined to Christ, now we can begin to bear fruit. That should be our goal. So once I was bitter, but now I have joy, right? If we're up on the Christian. I hope that each one of us is identifying with Naomi and Ruth. If you can't, before the story's over, I hope you can. And yes, once I was bitter, but now I've been better. Thank you, Lord, that one day you saw us leaning without hope in the field, in your field, and you brought us into yourself. You approached us and brought us into your family. So we can praise you for that and ask that we may bear much fruit for the 